0: The Strand Players, fresh from their stupendous European tour, where they perform before several of the crowned heads of Europe, gaining their plaudits and praise with magnificent dramatic performances, combining both comedy and tragedy. The Strand Players wish to make it known that they shall be appearing at the Royal Court Theatre, Drury Lane, for a limited engagement in April, at which they will present My Look-Alike Brother Tom, the Littlest Violet Seller and The Great Old Ones Come. This last, a historical epic of pageantry and delight, each an entire play in one act. Tickets are available now from the box office.
1: It is the immensity, I believe. The hugeness of things below, the darkness of dreams. But I am wool gathering, forgive me. I am not a literary man. I had been in need of lodgings. That was how I met him. I wanted someone to share the cost of rooms with me. We were introduced by a mutual acquaintance in the chemical laboratories of St. Bart's. You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. That was what he said to me, and my mouth fell open and my eyes opened very wide. Astonishing, I said. Not really, said the stranger in the white lab coat, who was to become my friend. From the way you hold your arm, I see that you have been wounded, and in a particular way. You have a deep tan. You also have a military bearing, and there are few enough places in the empire that a military man can be both tanned and, given the nature of the injury to your shoulder and the traditions of the Afghan cave folk, tortured. Put like that, of course, it was absurdly simple. But then, it always was. I had been tanned nut brown, and I had indeed, as he had observed, been tortured. (laughs)
0: got a little time we've got a little
1: podcast
0: it's short story short podcast i'm chris and today i'm here with
1: christy baxter as always
0: excellent now christy i understand we both pointedly read a short story this week
1: we did in fact and the short story that we both pointedly read was a study in emerald by neil gaiman
0: neil wonderful human being that he is uh one of the people who shares my header on both Twitter and Facebook. Uh, he is a writer whose work I have a lot of difficulty with. Some of it I adore, some of it I just cannot get into. But this story, and I think it's because of how I first encountered it, is one of my favorites. And the way he has it on his website, com, is as a faux... I don't want to say leaflet, but it's pretty much in a leaflet form.
1: Sort of a broadsheet, maybe? Broadsheet. Even better.
0: Where it has ads that are semi-related, sometimes deeply related to the text, that have these sort of mood-setting elements. And it's one of those things where it really, how you encounter the story, really affects what the story does to you.
1: Yeah, I really fell in love with the presentation of this. I I didn't. I didn't expect it. I didn't know to expect it. And when it first started, you know, I first start reading and I read the advertisement, I was like, oh, okay, old timey kind of advertisement, neat. And then the way that those progress throughout and the way that it's set up in two columns and that very much, you know, like something that would be handed out in the street in 1881 in England very much uh pulled me in because it created this atmosphere that was even more immersive i feel
0: Mm -hmm. and one thing i want to point out is that this is the first time on this show we have actually talked about fan fiction because that's what this is neil gaiman above everything is a science fiction nerd and this is him taking characters from two universes that are massively influential on him, Sherlock Holmes and the Cthulhu's mythos, mashing them up and putting them out there. And the influences on this are actually really interesting when he's talked about it. He's mentioned uh, the Wald Newton uh, world created by Philip Jose Farmer, one of my fantastically favorite writers of all time, and the other guys who he wrote about earlier that were very important to him. And I am now completely blanking the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, From the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. The wonderful, rich world of intertextualism. And what's really fascinating here is you can see the influence of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen on how it's presented. And the idea that all of these characters sort of exist in the same universe, if you only tweak each one of them a little bit, that is really from the Walt Newton concept. So it's really a fascinating mashup.
1: And it's one of those huge risks that you take with a mashup like that where you're pulling in so many disparate threads where you run the risk of overstuffing the story with all those references and then losing people who aren't familiar with those particular worlds. You run the risk of it being confusing. And I I, he didn't he managed to completely subvert those risks altogether. It, It was it know i'm i'm not super familiar with like the league of extraordinary gentlemen and i was still able to you know follow along and understand what was going just through sheer implication so i think it it can be a, a a little bit of a tightrope walk but i think that he he managed the balance brilliantly
0: and i think part of that is his ability to ape the language so well It is the immensity, I believe, the hugeness of things below the darkness of dreams. One, that is the most Neil Gaiman sentence that has ever Neil Gaimaned. But it also, it is literally the overlap. Uh, If you gave an AI the entirety of Cthulhu mythos, particularly the stuff written by uh, Clark Ashton Smith and everything ever written in the style of Sherlock Holmes, this is what an AI would spit out. And it's beautifully done. And then he follows it up with, but I am wool gathering, forgive me, I am not a literary man. Boom. One, that's a flat out lie, because this is written as if being told by a literary man. The language here is so precisely cut. Every word is perfect to the concepts he's trying to get across in the style that he's trying to get across. And I think that is one of the things that just blew me away by this the first time I read it. Because it it won the Hugo in 2004, I think. At that point, I was reading everything that was nominated because I was a fool. Uh, Now the Hugos mean nothing. (laughs) 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 Yeah, once I win them, they just go downhill. Uh, (laughs) um, But what's fascinating here is he doesn't give you everything.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what needs to happen in order to avoid that, like overstuffing that I talked about. He he doesn't give you an, everything, and it's one of those things that we've talked about in previous episodes, where the writer lets the reader join in the work, and I, I always admire that because it can be so tempting to tell your readers too much or to show them too much, whichever. And that I think, I have this theory that I don't even know if it's my theory or if I got it from a professor, but <laughs> I do believe that many of the writing mistakes that are made, be they stylistic, be they uh, syntax, be even grammar, are out of fear. I mean, think about commas. People who overuse commas are afraid that they're not going to use enough, and so they use too many, and people who don't use commas are afraid that they don't know how to use them. So they don't use any. And it's the same thing with telling a story. You're so afraid that your reader's not going to catch what you're trying to do, that you do it too much. Many people fall into that trap Um, and either a good editor or a good self-editor or a combination of the both and a good writer to begin with can avoid that. But it really, really insists that you put your trust in the reader. And that I think is... The relationship that is ideal between writer and reader. And I love when we get to see it like this.
0: And I think part of it is also that Gaiman had so much trust that the reader knew the source material at least to a degree. Mm -hmm. We all sort of have been soaking in Lovecraft uh, through the entirety of 2020. Um, (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, just all we need now is for the old ones to wake up. It's Um,
1: sad because it's true.
0: (laughs) The character, the the best way to put it. The way the Sherlock Holmes analog is presented, who may well be Holmes in specific but is also nebulous enough that you can make the argument that it's not uh, even though it's obviously Watson
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: Is so dead on perfect for the sort of character that Lovecraft would have written as having gone mad except as super hyper analytical uh, and just that first The first time he talks kills me just so great. And, you know, Watson is probably the character I most wish I was, but no, I'll never be. Uh, (laughs) hmm.
1: Oh, you'd make a wonderful Watson. (laughs) (sighs) That means a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, how how much uh, Lovecraft had you read before this?
1: Um, Not a ton. I mean, smatterings here and there. I can't even specifically name exactly what I've read. Um, Probably the most association I can say with Lovecraft. I mean, the Mountain Goats song Lovecraft in Brooklyn is always the first thing that comes up. When anybody mentions Lovecraft, that song just immediately gets stuck in my head and I love it.
0: See, the song that gets stuck in my head is the B-52s. Lovecraft, baby,
1: Lovecraft. Lovecraft. This has gone off the rails. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Maybe a little bit. I love it though, I love it.
0: Yes. But yeah, I mean, it's a shockingly accurate portrayal of bringing it forward into the 20th century with the the sort of the pop culture knowledge. And you do have to come into this with some soaking in that world, but we're all soaking in it anyhow, like I said. But even if you don't have anything, there's so many little touches here that you catch on. One of my favorite though is a phrase um, there, he said, there's the tall man found, or I'm a Dutchman. <laughs> <laughs> I just, for, I want to start just calling people, saying people, or I'm a Dutchman, because I think that really, it's a little touches like that, that just bring the whole thing together.
1: Yeah, it really, it gives it that authenticity, because that, whether or not that actually is something they said in the late uh, 19th century, it feels like it should be if it's not.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's mocking the Dutch and they have it coming. They know what they did.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah, no, this is a great story. It's one of Neil's best, I think. Oh, now in the pantheon of your reading, where would you sort of, what would you sort of attach this sort of story to?
1: Oh gosh, you ask the tough questions, don't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's like one step away of somebody asking you, well, what's your favorite book? Because then you're your just like, book? I don't know, (laughs) it changes based on the day and based on what I've read, but it's one of those things that like, I feel like there are so many things that I can attach this to. And I guess in in my Pantheon, I mean, it's it's really an obvious answer, but it's the one that I have and that's Sherlock Holmes, you know, like to me that is, all the other elements are certainly there and are intertwined, but it's the Sherlock Holmesiness of it. That really drew me in, and that was the very first thing that I recognized. So I would say, I would say that, yeah. And it's a, it's a classic, absolutely one of the classic characters in fiction. So yeah, there you go. There's your answer. How about you? Wow,
0: I'm. No one's ever asked me a question before. Um, <laughs> I probably, honestly, uh, hitting this. I think just because of that opening. It is the work of Clark Ashton Smith and his his dealing with the Cthulhu uh, mythos that really comes to mind, and of course, I mean the Colorado Space and all that stuff. Um, I was for a while a Lovecraft nerd um, until I read some of his in good writings. Um,
1: uh, Lovecraft in Brooklyn. <laughs>
0: yeah, Lovecraft was kind of a bad dude. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but a lot of the folks who attach themselves, uh, like Robert Block, like uh, Clark Ashen Smith, they actually produce stuff that I think was as good and definitely as textured as Lovecraft was. So i sort of come at it from that angle but i'm also a massive sherlock holmes nerd uh did a whole issue of one of my zines about holmes spoiler alert he was a good good writer that uh that guy
1: that guy yeah yeah he was pretty good
0: wish i could remember his name off the top of my head and i can picture him
1: (laughs) now my brain is also blanking (laughs) what is happening tonight
0: it's not bram stoker it's the other one
1: (laughs) (laughs) conan arthur doyle
0: arthur conan doyle
1: that, that one, that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, and it reminds me of the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, whose name I have never forgotten in my life.
1: Uh, <laughs> same, same here, same here.
0: Uh, excellent. But yeah, I think really Doyle's, I think really the difference between the two of them is Doyle was a master at plot. And how do you move a plot along while Lovecraft was texture? He was color, he was setting. And I think that having the two of them mixed up here was a recipe for success.
1: Yeah. And it's not one that you would immediately jump to. I mean, who thinks like Lovecraft and Doyle immediately off the bat, you know? But it it ends, it's so it's really impressive how well it ends up working. Yes. <laughs> Always All good right. when you agree with me so so thoroughly.
0: <laughs> True. All right, cool. Well, hey, Christy.
1: Yes. What are we going to read next week? Next week, we are going to read Christmas Gift by Robert Penn Warren. Uh,
0: Excellent. My favorite member of the one and only original Genuine Family Band. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so this has been
1: Short Story, Short Podcast.